Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Today, Jenny Brown will recount the history of the struggle that led to the legalization of abortion in the U.S. almost 50 years ago, and David DeYoung will talk about German business models who came to support Hitler's rise to power and profited off a criminal war. First, abortion. Roe v. Wade, the 1973 Supreme Court decision that legalized abortion in the U.S. didn't come out of nowhere. There was a long struggle to get there, a struggle we can learn from today if we want to see abortion fully legal in the U.S. again. Jenny Brown is the author of two books in the topic, both of which came out in 2019, Without Apology from Verso and Birth Strike from PM Press. She's also an organizer with National Women's Liberation. Jenny Brown. Journalists aren't necessarily big on history, uh, so we um, don't really um, get much of a background to where Roe came from. It just seems like, you know, it was handed out from on high. But certainly there was a lot of struggle that went into that decision, uh, that preceded that decision. Give us an outline of what the struggle for abortion rights was like in the, the decade or two before Roe. There was obviously a lot of illegal abortion going on, but there was a group of mostly professionals, lawyers, doctors, some writers, and some ordinary women who spent a lot of time in the 50s and 60s trying to reform the laws. So this took the form of changing state laws, which had no exceptions to abortion, or maybe if you were on death's door, you could get an abortion. There was a, a model reform law, which said, oh, rape, incest, life and health of the person who is pregnant. I never got those exceptions. If you think abortion is murder, why do you make any exceptions? What does that say about you know, where they're coming from? For one thing, abortion is sort of a an American tradition. I mean, it came from the British common law that until quickening, which is around the fourth or fifth month, it was regarded as perfectly acceptable up until the 1870s when doctors and the various uh, groups around Comstock managed to get abortion and any information about contraception, along with basically any information about sex, made completely illegal throughout the country. Uh, this result resulted in a century of, of illegal abortion. But uh, people were having abortions all during that period. And there have been several waves of abortion repression. And then, for example, during the Great Depression, they let up on abortion, anti-abortion prosecutions. And you really didn't see much of that until another crackdown that started in 1940 and really got a lot of momentum after the war in which doctors who had practiced safely, provided thousands of abortions to people, started to get arrested. This was particularly true in the 50s. And what that meant was that, first of all, abortions became a lot more expensive because the supply went down, but they also became a lot more dangerous. The expense meant that you had a lot of mercenaries and, and quacks coming in to try to provide them. And that led to wards full of dying or severely infected individuals in, in every hospital in the country, you had botched abortion cases. So really, the, the crackdown did lead to a lot of professionals feeling that there had to be some other way to do this. But they didn't think that they could win what they really thought, which was, you know, you should be able to get an abortion when you wanted one. They thought, well, we have to approach this carefully. It's a very tricky issue. Let's try to reform the laws. Now, there were exceptions to this. It was a group of three women in California who had all had illegal abortions and set about to break the laws in California. In fact, they gave classes on self-aborting. They handed out flyers with addresses in Mexico, places, do you want an abortion? Why not get one? In the early 60s, um, this group called the Army of Three, led by Pat McGinnis, was extremely um, vociferous and did not take this sort of reform approach. But for the most part, across the country, it was a reform approach. Now, that ended when the women's liberation movements took on abortion as an issue. And the women's liberation movement comes 
it's largely a cadre of women who had been in in other movements in the 60s at first. So in the Southern Civil Rights Movement, in the anti-war movement, and the student left. And they came together to discuss their own oppression, both in the world and the discrimination that they had experienced in those movements. And they started out, the initial program was consciousness raising, which was a way of analyzing their conditions. They got the idea from civil rights movement events where people would stand up and talk about their experiences with racism. So one of the things that came up a lot is that many of them had had illegal abortions, which were expensive, humiliating, dangerous, terrifying, or they had been unable to get the abortions that they wanted. And they realized that they had not really talked to anyone else about these experiences. They'd been blaming themselves. You know, how could I be so stupid, careless? Why did I get myself into this situation? And they really didn't experience this at all as a political thing. They conceptualized it as a personal failing, a mistake, a problem. Well, consciousness raising and hearing all of these other women talk about it made it into a something they could conceptualize as a political demand. And we have to remember that also abortion was legal throughout the socialist world by the mid fifties. So, and, and then in 1967, England liberalized the law to make a health exception, which doctors then started providing abortions on the most broad version of the health exception. So it was essentially legal in England too. And people were aware that this was true. So, so it definitely helped to have some international comparisons, but Basically, they realized that breaking through secrecy and shame were tremendous ways to really unite a movement around getting abortion to be legalized. And so what their first action in New York was they broke up a reform hearing, a reform panel. You know, they were discussing these various exceptions. If you'd had already had four kids, could you maybe get an abortion? And a group of women snuck in, you know, wearing wearing their pearls and looking looking very staid and then started to break up the reform hearing they were allowed to keep, go on for 30 minutes yelling about their illegal abortions and what what had happened to them and you know saying well the, I wanted an abortion 3 years ago and now the kid is 3 years old and eventually they they locked them out and conducted the hearing in a closed room but the feminists decided, that, and this was a group that would soon be called Red Stockings, decided to hold their own abortion hearing, and they called the press and got a church and uh, held their own hearing. And they spoke about their illegal abortions for the first time that had ever been done. And it's interesting to notice that the feminist movement, all through this century of illegal abortion, the feminist movement had not taken up abortion as an issue. Birth control, yes. Abortion had never been an issue in the 30s, really, was never demanded. Margaret Sanger, who, you know, the right wing hates, was never in favor of abortion. She she always thought that it was too much of a nervous strain, even when she went to the Soviet Union and saw abortions performed safely in hospitals. She still thought that it was too dangerous and always just was for birth control. So really, when the feminist movement starts to take this up, this is a movement that's growing by leaps and bounds. Suddenly it becomes a mass issue and you have enormous marches, you have hearings getting broken up all over the country, and there's just a lot of momentum to change the laws, which succeeded in changing the law in 1970 in New York. And then shortly thereafter, Roe was decided, basically because so many laws in other states are being changed or are going to be overturned by lawsuits. In Washington, D.C., abortion was made legal by essentially overturning the, the D.C. law for vagueness. In California, they had liberalized the laws. Hawaii had liberalized the laws significantly. So, so there, clearly there was a lot of momentum towards changing the law. And in New York, one of the reasons they wanted to pass a law was they were afraid that the legal cases would vacate the law and then there would be no abortion law. So very much a mobilization of a mass movement. That's how we got the abortion law that we were able to get. There was this disruptive political action, consciousness raising, uh, the personal is political entered the, the vocabulary. But there was also a considerable amount of civil disobedience, wasn't there? 
Yeah, I, one interesting aspect that people don't talk about a lot now is there was a clergy abortion referral service, which was a group of clergy who openly advertised to that they would refer. Um, it was the clergy consultation service on abortion. So they were very clear what they were talking about. And basically, you could go to them and they would refer you to an illegal abortion in another state. They hoped that if they did it across state lines, it would make it a little harder for prosecutors to come after them. And they operated from 1967 until Roe was decided. A couple of them did get indicted at various points. But essentially, this was a a massive effort of thousands and thousands of clergy who were essentially referring people for illegal abortions. So that's one part of the civil disobedience. In Chicago, there was the Jane Collective, which provided, first provided through um, somebody who claimed he was a doctor, uh, many, many abortions. And then they sort of got a bulk discount and provided provided patients who wanted abortions. But then it was reveal, revealed that he actually wasn't a doctor. And while they felt really terrible having referred all these abortions to this guy who didn't have a medical degree that also occurred to them, well, he got pretty good results, very good results. And if he's not a doctor, then maybe we can do it ourselves. So they slowly got trained by this guy to to do their own abortions. And they provided several uh, around 12,000 abortions during the during the period that they were in operation. They got raided shortly before Roe and were uh, several were arrested. But they did continue to provide abortions up through the decision. Now, of course, underground abortion, that's not effective in changing the law because it's largely secret and underground. But there was an extent to which the abortions were an open secret. And one of the arguments made in the the arguments for the New York law to be passed was that people who had money or connections were getting illegal abortions, but they were safe people who didn't have the money or connections or information were either trying to give themselves abortions or getting abortions from from people who really didn't know what they were doing and were ending up in hospitals or dying. And that hit poor people, and particularly women of color in New York. It was Black and Puerto Rican women that were bearing the brunt of that. So the inequality of it, because it was sort of an open secret that you could either go overseas or find a doctor in the U.S. if you had the money, really created some momentum towards changing the law. Now, in those days uh, when abortion was illegal, but the penalties were nowhere near as severe as what you're hearing in some of these states, 10 and 20 year prison terms. Yeah, even doctors who had practiced for decades, uh, generally the the prison term was two years, something like that, three years on occasion. And in general, women were not prosecuted the way they have been for their pregnancy outcomes over the last 20 years. So um, so there is a case in uh, Florida where a woman was prosecuted basically because she refused to give the police information. Shirley Wheeler, she, the prosecutor sort of sort of mournfully said, well, we could have made a deal if she'd, if she'd been willing to cooperate, but she told us it was none of our business. So you can, you can imagine that there was retaliation and that the main historian of all of this, Leslie Reagan, who wrote a book in 1997 called When Abortion Was a Crime, she says that the, in general, they didn't prosecute women, although women got caught up in these cases as material witnesses and could be jailed if they didn't provide evidence. So it's sort of a distinction without a difference. You're still being threatened, you're still uh, being threatened with jail, you're still having your name put in the newspaper, a lot of, you know, a lot of the bad consequences. But in general, the providers were the ones that they targeted, thinking, of course, that that would um, cause cause abortions to be difficult to get, which, of course, it, it worked. And it meant that the quality of the providers went down. I'm speaking with Jenny Brown of National Women's Liberation. So what can we learn from that struggle 50, 60 years ago for um, today, now that we're facing, it's a very different landscape. I mean, it's going to be legal in some states, illegal, severely illegal in other states. People have had years of experience of legal abortion that's now been taken away. But what can we learn from those early decades of struggle uh, to apply to the present? I think, first of all, we have to, 
we have to confront the problem of the timidity of nonprofits, which have been leading the movement pretty much uh, since the 90s in the direction of respectability politics. Oh, yes, we, you know, we're, we're good girls. We're not, we're not encouraging abortion. We're just, um, you know, abortion is this tragic thing. And, and, you know, we're helping people and whatnot, rather than a women's liberation demand as a right that we all need. Now that's changed somewhat. And one of the ways it's changed, I think, has been, first of all, the reproductive justice movement. And this is an idea started by Black women in the 90s in response to the Clinton healthcare plan, which was going to completely throw over abortion. They said, look, abortion is is not enough. We need the right to not have kids, but we also need the right to have kids. And we need the right to raise them in decent conditions. So all of this focus on not having children is really taking it out of the context of our liberation struggle, and we need to put it back in there. So I think that is a, that's very clearly a, an issue that we have sort of boiled down women's liberation to a to this one tenuous right, which actually doesn't, we don't even have the right to it. It's, it's a, something you have to pay for. So that, I think that has really um, attenuated our, our whole approach and our demands have become weakened by, by that. Even the, even the use of choice instead of abortion, which five years ago, I was railing against the use of choice and, and uh, advocating that people use abortion. And, and this was one of the things that my group, National Women's Liberation, made a big, a big deal out of. And we have really seen a change in the last five years People are using the word abortion finally again and have stopped just saying choice, which if you're not paying attention, you don't even know what people are talking about when they talk about choice. Well, it's like a consumer product, you know? Yeah. Choice really doesn't encompass what the importance of this of this right for a general liberation movement, right? I mean, it, it really <laughs> it really boils it down to, as you say, kind of a, a commercial product type framing. So but the most important thing is that if you can't fight for a right unless you can name it. And this was something they learned in Ireland. Yeah, as, as you anticipated my question, Ireland. I mean, that's an amazing struggle uh, in a, what had been a very socially conservative country under uh, the eye of the Catholic Church, and uh, they won a major victory. How did they do it, and what can we learn from that? It was the same lesson that we learned in the 60s in the U.S. When you go for small reforms— For example, one of their fights was around how many psychiatrists had to certify you as suicidal before you could be permitted to have an abortion. When you argue around those things, it does not apply to most people. So most people don't get involved in the struggle. Whereas when they started to talk about free, safe, legal abortion, which was the slogan of the, the campaign, that attracted many, many more people who would be affected by it. The narrowness of the of the reform argument is really makes it much weaker, even though sort of people think that it's stronger because, oh, we're only asking for a little bit. Surely that would be easier to get. It turns out that you can't amass the forces that you need to win it if you're just arguing for what will affect only a few people. So that was very important. They also used the word abortion. One of the leading groups was called the Abortion Rights Campaign. They argued very strenuously that they wanted to put the the word abortion in into the name and they were criticized everybody said oh no it's it's too extreme nobody will in fact people flocked to it the catholic church had also been weakened by these sexual abuse scandals and the and other terrible things that they the catholic church had done in ireland that were being exposed so so that was helpful they had also just won a marriage equality amendment in and so that victory a few years before really made it really gave people a sense that something could be won. And then the other thing is that they, they went door to door. They talked about their own abortions in the media, famous people, columnists in the Irish times came out and said that they had had abortions and they just really approached it as let's bring this out into the open and talk to people about it. And they had dozens and dozens of events, large rallies, enormous amounts of canvassing. Weekend after weekend, they would canvass. And canvassing is a little more common in Ireland. You know, you're 
your member of parliament might show up at your door, even not during election season. <laughs> Remarkable. Yeah. So people are, are a little bit more used to, to the canvassing, but they would do door-to-door canvassing and really go back and talk to people multiple times about the issue. So a lot of conversations, but generally a national conversation about abortion and what it meant. And of course, for people in Ireland, if you want an abortion, what it generally meant is you had to go had to go somewhere else. You had to go to England or you had to go overseas. So that was also a kind of an open secret that people were getting abortions. They just weren't able to get them in the country where they live. So that certainly also helped, but um, just a massive mobilization. And they did not, they expected it to be close and it was actually not that close. They, they actually won by a considerable margin. We in the United States have become so used to having these rights bestowed by court decisions that uh, it seems like a lot of you know, elite liberals in particular just love the litigation lobbying model. But what we really need to do is have a popular mobilization and get it codified into law. That seems the most secure way to accomplish this. Am I wrong? That's exactly right. I mean, and even last fall, we had the Congress passed the Women's Health Protection Act, which would have essentially codified Roe. And then they brought it up in the Senate twice, where they were unable to get it to go forward, not just because of the filibuster, but also they couldn't get Joe Manchin on board. So they didn't even have a majority of Democrats. And this leads us to the question of the Democratic Party being a real obstacle in this case. The Democratic Party... all during um, during the last 50 years, there have been many cases where the Democratic Party had a large majority and could have codified Roe, made it the law of the land, and then we would not be in this situation. But they did not. And in fact, they continued to pass the Hyde Amendment, which, which is an amendment on every appropriations bill, basically saying that federal funds cannot go to abortion. So that sort of indicates just how um, how weak the Democrats have been on this. And in addition to which, it wasn't until Bernie's run in 2016 that the Democratic Party officially came out against the Hyde Amendment. So you can see that the Democrats, although they often use abortion as their, as their main uh, selling point, will protect abortion rights, the Republicans won't, they have not been very vigorous in actually doing that which means that we are left without a political vehicle to represent the vast majority of people who think abortion should be legal. So that puts us in this position, um, as we often are in the U.S. right now, of the court makes decisions, the legislature is hamstrung by the filibuster rule, and that means that the court's decisions, whether it's on unionization in the public sector or Citizens United or voting rights, all of these things have been basically handed down by the courts, and we do not have the ability legislatively to respond simply because of the filibuster rule. So we are in this position where something's got to give. Either the legislature has to, at some point, be able to start legislating, or we're going to be ruled by the court forevermore, which is a scary proposition given given what we've recently experienced with these decisions. The right, I mean, the anti-abortion right, or the, the right generally, like them or not, they've been very successful uh, at <laughs> getting what they want. And certainly they've been doing that at the elite level, but it's also, to some degree, a grassroots social movement. Um, is there anything we can learn from uh, their operations? Well, there has been a certain apologeticness and timidity on our side that we do not see much in the on the right wing. So that is certainly something. Also, a very successful long-range plan to take over the judiciary. I mean, I, because they do not have the public on their side on this issue, just clearly poll after poll, they had to do it through the judiciary, which is which was the plan. Now, of course, the Achilles heel is if we actually had a legislature that re- represented us, we would uh, be able to respond to that very easily. Then the question is, why are the Democrats such wimps? Are they simply unable to get it together? Or do they have a, a mandate to make sure that abortion is actually not that available to people in the U.S.? And in my view, there is a substantial portion of the corporate class that would like to see the birth rate rise. It, it's our, now at its lowest point ever in the U.S., 1.64 children per woman. And um, in Europe, when they experience lower birth rates, they have basically made it easier to have kids by instituting long paid leaves, 
free childcare, child allowances, basically a monthly check you get to get just because you have a child. Here, basically because of a gridlock in our legislature, we have not seen any of those pronatal programs. The only pronatal program that remains is simply uh, to make it harder and harder for us to get birth control and abortion. Hey, we had a child credit for six months. <laughs> exactly. I mean, and you can see in the States, we have one small bits of paid family leave because the federal law is unpaid, which makes it very difficult for people to take it. And it only applies to about 50% of the working population anyway. So, but in the States, we've seen victories on some s- small amounts of paid family leave and additional sick leave and so forth. But nationally, the only thing we've seen is is the pandemic programs. But then there, there was also, you know, a big debate about should we have a child allowance, which I think had the birth rate not gone down the way it has over the last 10 years, I think we would not be we would not have the momentum around that. But still, unless you can get practically half of the Republican delegation to support something, you're not going to get it through the Senate. So Biden's plan was sunk as a result. So the problem for the ruling class here is we have a a plunging birth rate. We have, you know, an immigration rate that is flagging, partly because people are not that interested in in coming to the United States. It doesn't seem like such a great place. There are other places that are nicer. And capitalist growth depends in large part on population growth. And this is openly talked about in other countries. You know, you see it a little bit... uh, Sotto voce in the capitalist think tanks and occasionally in the press, but it usually comes out as boring demographic concerns. But in the rest of the world, it's very openly talked about how can we get our birth rates up to increase opportunities for profit. Yeah, if we don't have enough uh, young people to support Social Security, we could just cut Social Security, right? Well, they even talk about getting people to have larger families because if you're going to cut Social Security, you have to push those expenses back into the family. So we have to encourage people to have larger families so that we are able to credibly do that. It all fits together, right? In sum, if we want to uh, restore abortion rights, we need a really serious, militant, vigorous mass movement and not a bunch of litigators and uh, non-profiteers. Yeah. And you can see in the States already, um, the the lawyers are, are trying to squeeze out another 30 days, stay this bill here, stay that bill there. But really, the energy in the movement is coming from the abortion funds and the grassroots feminist groups and um, and reproductive justice groups that are there on the ground trying to provide the care and have really been retooling to think about how they can make that happen in states where it's where it's illegal without having the law come down on people who are trying who are most vulnerable and are trying to get abortions. So that's definitely been a discussion. There are also underground networks designed to provide abortion pills to people who need them. Um, there are overseas networks. Aid Access provides abortion pills from overseas. And you can see the right in these uh, states that are about to make abortion illegal or which have already made abortion illegal, scrambling to figure out how they can prosecute bringing in pills, if they can prosecute people for crossing the state lines and getting abortions in other places. They can get somewhat like the Texas law, more laws where there are vigilantes, where anybody can enforce the law by suing somebody that they suspect of providing an abortion. And in response to various prosecutors and, and district attorneys saying they will not arrest doctors for, for, for providing abortions. The Texas legislature is looking at allowing the state attorney general to bring those charges or DAs in neighboring counties could bring those charges. I mean, they're really trying to figure out how this enforcement is going to work. But meanwhile, we need to make a public demand for a national law that provides for for abortion rights and frankly, a national health system that provides abortion within it, along with birth control and childbirth and all the other things that we need. Because abortion has been accessible, but it's $530. It's not very accessible to a lot of people already. And that has been true for decades. So we didn't really have the right to abortion we don't want to go back to the status quo where it was barely available. What we want to do is, is really have this as, as a right that everybody can exercise. 
That was Jenny Brown, an organizer with National Women's Liberation and an author of two books on abortion, Without Apology from Verso and Birth Strike from PM Press. Jenny discussed the timidity of nonprofits, a point that needs serious emphasis. I once asked a former executive at Planned Parenthood why they made no effort to recruit clients to a movement to defend abortion access. She said it's because abortion is a very private affair, and they didn't want to politicize it. Stunned, I pointed out that it was already politicized, and they were MIA, but she had no real response. And now we see Planned Parenthood chapters across the country folding in the face of state bans rather than trying to fight them. You can say the same of the Democratic Party, which has spent decades saying, vote for us, contribute to us to defend Roe, and now that Roe has been overturned, they're all, who us? This has a long history. Our current president has a miserable record on the subject. In 1982, he is one of only two Democrats to vote for a constitutional amendment to overturn Roe. And here's the previous Democratic president talking a lot of evasive waffle on the topic in an April 2009 press conference. Asked by CNN's Ed Henry about his campaign promises to support the Freedom of Choice Act, which would have codified the right to abortion into federal law, here's what Obama had to say. My view on on, uh, abortion, I think, has been very consistent. I think abortion is a moral issue and an ethical issue. I think that those who are pro-choice make a mistake if they suggest, and I don't want to create straw men here, but I think there are some who suggest that uh, this is simply an issue about uh, women's freedom and that there's no other considerations. This is an issue that people have to wrestle with and families and and individual women have to wrestle with. The reason I'm pro-choice is because I don't think women take that uh, that position casually. I think that they struggle with these decisions each and every day, and I think they are in a better position to make these decisions, uh, ultimately, than members of Congress or, or a president of the United States, in consultation with their families, with their doctors, with uh, their clergy. That's been my consistent position. The other thing that I said consistently during the campaign is I would like to reduce the number of unwanted pregnancies that result in women feeling compelled to get an abortion or at least considering getting an abortion. And so I've got uh, a task force within the uh, uh, Domestic Policy uh, Council that is working with groups both in the pro-choice camp and in the pro-life camp to see if we can arrive at some consensus on that. The Freedom of Choice Act is not my highest legislative priority. I believe that women should have the right to choose. Uh, But uh, I think that the most important thing we can do to tamp down some of the the anger surrounding this issue uh, is to focus on those areas that we can agree on. That was Barack Obama in April 2009. Here are three organizations Jenny recommended if you want to support the right to abortion. Her own, National Women's Liberation, womensliberation.org on the web, Aid Access, which provides abortion pills from overseas, aidaccess.org, and Yellow Hammer, a fund that serves Alabama and Mississippi, at yellowhammerfund.org. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. some of More Rock, More Talk by the Butchies from 1999. Next, Nazi billionaires, or more exactly, the relationship between the titans of German industry and the Hitler regime. German Mongols were initially skeptical of Adolf Hitler and the Nazi movement, but they came around. That story is a topic of a new book by the journalist David de Jong, Nazi Billionaires, The Dark History of Germany's Wealthiest Families, just out from Mariner Books. 
It looks at five families in particular who made a fortune off the Nazi war machine and its rich supply of slave labor and whose descendants remain prominent figures in German business today. David de Jong. Now, you focus the book mainly on these five families, dynasties, but I was just curious about the broader German business class. Are these stories typical of what the German big business class was up to with the Nazis, or are these outstanding in any way? I would say their relevance today is the fact that they, the five families that I chose that are still Germany's most powerful and wealthiest business families today. But in a way, they were very exemplary of how the rest of Nazi Germany's or Germany's business class functioned at the time in the fact that they were sheer opportunists as opposed to ideologues. Yeah, that's an interesting question, because it looks like some of the ones that you write about were worried about communism yes. and uh, Germany is a mess, but also they were not actively promoting Nazi interests. It looks like they had to be recruited or energized or organized by the Nazis. Is that how it worked? Or was it like they had these sort of feelings, but then really the Nazis crystallized them? Their opportunism was such in, in, in the sense that before Hitler had his first electoral success in September 1930, they viewed Hitler and the Nazi party as clownish figures from the impoverished hinterlands and people not to be taken seriously or a political party as an entity not to be taken serious. It was only after, you know, the outbreak of, of the Great Depression and Black Friday on Wall Street and the capital wipeout that followed and millions being unemployed in Germany that on the wave of discontent that Hitler and the Nazi party rose to their first electoral success in September 1930, that opened the first door for Hitler to uh, Germany's business establishment. But even then, in those, in those two and a half years between September 30th and between January 1933, when Hitler ends up seizing power, the men, that, the main characters that I write about uh, or that feature in my book, are not really convinced of him. It is only after he seizes power in January 30th, January 30th 1933, that they fall in line. And of course, after 14 years of economic volatility and economic instability of the Weimar Republic, what Hitler promises them is economic stability and political stability. And they want to protect their businesses and their fortunes at all costs. That's the only thing they were interested in, and also in the expansion of, of, of their business empires. And they fall in line after Hitler seizes power. And of course, with the promise of rearmament and the execution of that, billions in high smart flow to the, into their coffers and, and of their and of their companies. Hitler called him in for a, a meeting and uh, they started writing checks and supporting the Nazi party. It didn't seem like it. Uh, they hesitated once they're in the presence of uh, the Fuhrer. received an explicit promise three weeks after Hitler seizes power that he's going to do away with German democracy and, and they all end up paying into that. And German labor unions, which uh, I'm sure they also like to hear. Yes, indeed. So these five families, some I think Americans have heard of, some haven't. I didn't really know much about the Quants before this, uh, but they seem like uh, the most interesting of the crew in a lot of ways, uh, and the connection with the Goebbels family. So uh, give us the outline. Who are the Quants? What was their origin? Uh, and then uh, how did they play with Hitler? The Quant dynasty today is, 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 is Germany's most powerful business dynasty today. The two of their heirs controlled BMW. Their patriarch, Günther Quant, ended up being one of the Third Reich's most influential industrialists as he controlled two companies, a massive global batteries, batteries company called AFA, which is known as Farta today, which produces batteries for the airports and such. And he controlled a massive arms armaments manufacturer called DWM. Both companies were based in Berlin. When Hitler seized power in January 1933, he was perfectly positioned to profit from Nazi Germany's rearmament policies. And he ended up being one of the largest exploiters of forced slave labor. Almost 60,000 people were exploited as forced slave laborers among uh, Kwan's factories uh, across Germany. He expropriated Jewish-owned businesses and businesses and uh, expropriated businesses in German-occupied territories. Before Hitler, Quant uh, was uh, Quant was uh, quite the master corporate takeover artist, and then uh, he yes, put those is. skills to work in um, seizing Jewish businesses, right? Yes, kind of. I mean, he was a corporate raider. I mean, that, that, that was how he came from a wealthy textile manufacturing family in the provinces outside of Berlin. And of course, he made his mark or really established fortune during the hyperinflation of the Weimar Republic in the early 1920s, when he staged these two wholesale takeovers of, of the battery company and the armaments manufacturer. Um, and yes, he used those same kind of tactics 
in the ironization of Jewish-owned businesses in the late 1930s. And the absolute absence of any moral scruple, I suppose we shouldn't be surprised by it, but it's striking on page after page that these these guys just had not a moment's hesitation. We don't want to get too much on our high horses because who knows how any other nationalities businesses would behave under similar circumstances, but it is really a striking absence of any doubt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, zero reflection on on the crimes they committed. The Quant family uh, got all wrapped up with the Goebbels family. Uh, yeah, tell that story. How that happened? And uh, Magda is quite a character. She was. She was indeed. So, so Günter Quant, in October 1918, his his first wife Antonia dies, and he suddenly is about to move to Berlin, and he suddenly a 37 year old widower with two young sons. Uh, moving to the capital of the fallen German Empire, and he doesn't know what to do with himself. Three months later, on a night train from uh, Berlin to central Germany, he meets a young woman, on a, a 17-year-old, it's not a woman even, it's a girl, a 17-year-old girl called Magda Friedlander at the time, born Magda Rachel, who becomes enamored with her, asks her on a date, uh, asks for a hand after the third date, and they get married. It's a disaster of a marriage which still lasts a decade. They have one son together, Harald. And then, of course, after the divorce, Magda Quant quickly becomes uh, Magda Goebbels, the infamous first lady of the Third Reich. But there's also quite the flirtation with Hitler, right? Hitler also falls in love with her, and he appoints her as the unofficial first lady of the Third Reich. And in a way, because he has to stay uh, in his own telling, faithful to the German people, so he's not allowed to get married. I mean, because he can't be with Magda, he appoints Joseph and Magda Goebbels, the, the model relationship for, for the rest of, of Germany. And then Hitler took quite a shine to that kid Harald, right? Yeah, yeah. So both both Goebbels and, and Hitler started to use Harald as a kind of Nazi propaganda prop because he was either eyes the perfect kind of embodiment of Germans in these racial uh, ideals. And they start to take him all around torchlight processions and such. And, and he gets to ride with, with Hitler and Goebbels in the main car. And, and they, they really start using Günter Klant's son, of course, but Goebbels' stepson at that point, as a, as a propaganda probe. And then come the end of the war and um, a lot of uh, German generals in the dock at Nuremberg. Uh, what happened to Klant? He got off scot-free, as did his son Her- Herbert, who was who also perpetrated in his um, crimes, and, and many of the other families are right about. They were, quote-unquote, denazified, as it was called, in these very flawed legal processes called denazification trials. What was the mechanism of those trials? Who, who presided? Who organized them? As the Cold War emerged for the, for the United States, particularly Nazi Germany, quickly became ancient history, and they started this accelerated handover of suspected Nazi war perpetrators and uh, of suspected Nazi war criminals and sympathizers back to German authorities. They stage these things called denazification trials, which is a word you hear thrown around a lot these days because it is what Putin, Vladimir Putin is perverting, he's doing perversely uh, in, in Ukraine. But in matter of fact, denazification denotes a very specific legal term, which was a... Uh, a very flawed legal process, which were stated layman trials that were staged across uh, occupied Germany. Layman judges, layman prosecutors that would denazify uh, millions uh, of Germans. Of course, that never happened. The big myth of denazification was of those that, that, that headed the trials. Uh, they did not want to judge their compatriots on crimes and sympathies that many of them had, had shared in. So they became show trials in a way and saw millions uh, get off scot-free for their crimes and sympathies. And then at that point, the American proconsul, John McCloy, also had interest in getting the Nazi business behind them as quickly as possible, right? What was McCloy's interest? Once he is appointed as High Commissioner for Occupied Germany, the Cold War is raging and the Korean War has just broken out and they have zero interest. He makes a political expedient decision that placates the Western Germany and a new ally in, in the Cold War. And he lets off all those that are, or he commutes the death sentences and the sentences of, of many high-ranking SS, former high-ranking SS officers and other industrialists that were convicted at Nuremberg and, and releases them back into the world out of a political expedient decision to placate Chancellor Konrad Adenauer and the Western German public 
which they need as an ally in the in the Cold War and which they need for the production of armaments uh, in the Korean War. And the German public is sick and tired of seeing their own men by, held in prison by an occupying force in their own country. And that is, it's a, it was a, a political expedient decision. It was, a, uh, they wanted to placate Western Germany as an ally. I'm speaking with David de Jong, author of Nazi Billionaires, just out from Mariner Books. Did any of these Mongols who were crucial to the war effort and were heavy users of slave labor, did any of them face any serious consequences or did they all get off scot-free? Well, Friedrich Flick was convicted at the, the Nuremberg trials, one of the main characters in my book, for war crimes and, and, and crimes against humanity. But all others were denazified and, and got off scot-free. Maybe had to pay a fine or a legal fees, but that was it. The Porsche Piech, is that how you pronounce it, family? Yeah. Very important to the war effort um, and uh, very rich after the war. Tell us the story of that, that family. Ferdinand Porsche was you know, a mercurial car designer and his uh, son-in-law, uh, Anton Piech, was a tough Viennese lawyer. Together with their Jewish uh, business partner, Adolf Rosenberger, they founded the Porsche Car Design Company in, in December 1930. They pushed uh, Adolf Rosenberger out of their company in July 1935, and Arianized his stake in the company, expropriate, bought him out for the nominal value of his shares, far under the market value of his shares. And of course, Ferdinand Porsche ends up becoming Hitler's favorite engineer as the designer of the Volkswagen. But Porsche, together with his son-in-law, Anton Pierre, preside over the Volkswagen factory during the Second World War, where tens of thousands of forced slave laborers, including thousands of concentration camp uh, captives, are exploited uh, under most horrific circumstances to produce weapons and not cars because the Volkswagen, only 530 Volkswagens were produced during the war and none of them went to the German people. Uh, it all went to the Nazi elite. And then what happened to them after the war? They were denazified and they also got off country. You know, many of them in this vacuum that occurred between 1945 and 1950, many of them were, of the main characters in my book, they were arrested and held in internment camps, but eventually were, as I said, were handed back over to German authorities and were let off in, uh, in denazification proceedings. With Fernand Porsche and Antipier, it was a little bit different because they were arrested by a French military force and they were held in a French military prison in Dijon. But eventually the trial against them after a bill of one million French francs was put up, completely imploded because the charges against them actually were uh, bogus. But somehow the prosecutors had overseen the fact that they exploited tens of thousands of forces that laborers at the Volkswagen factory, but only focused in on the expropriation that happened on French territory by Volkswagen during that time. It seemed like uh, the French were more interested in protecting the competitive interests of uh, yes, Peugeot than anything else. Indeed, right? indeed, indeed, exactly. Yeah. And today, I mean, these characters are still... Or, or their descendants, are very prominent in, in German industry, German society. That story at the end of the book about uh, seeing a name uh, on the art museum in Tel Aviv was really striking. Um, what happened there? I was actually there yesterday. I was in the Tel Aviv Museum of Art yesterday, and I spoke to the head of publicity. It's two of the main families in my book, the Quantum and the Flick family, they were on the, the wall there as, as, main don as donors, you know, which includes the granddaughter of Magda Goebbels prominently displayed in an in Israeli art museum and, and the Flick heirs, billionaires who have done nothing to reckon with their family's uh, Nazi business history. They were displayed there. Actually, the Flick family had, name has now been removed, but they had no idea that the Israeli museum, that they were, you know, highlighting two of Germany's wealthiest families that had also profited most of the Third Reich. That's remarkable. I mean, was it seen as some kind of reparations or just an oversight? Or I mean, I don't know. I mean, they never responded to my questions, these families. So, so I, I don't know how they... Oh, I mean, oh, from the Israeli perspective? No, yeah, the Israeli... Seen, and, uh, it, was a, it was an oversight. They didn't do their due diligence on the background of their donors. And then one of these uh, guys was funding the AFD, right? Yeah. So one of the main characters in my book, I was from Fink Senior, who died at age 91, in London in November 2021, was suspected to be one of the largest backers of the AFT, Germany's new far-right party. And his father, I was talking senior, was one of the main characters in my book, was, you know, an ideologue and the supervisory board chairman of Allianz and Munich Reed, two of the largest reinsurers today, and got fundraised very effectively for an art museum for Hitler in, in Munich. 
the House of German Art. And, you know, it's the only example I give him and was then later thanked for his fundraising efforts by being allowed to arianize the Rothschild Bank in Vienna, which is Austria's largest private bank at the time, and the Dreyfus private bank in Berlin. But it's the only example I give, of, I was from think uni, senior and junior, of continuity from my Nazi father uh, to a Nazi son who went on for 30 years from the early 1990s, uh, became one of Germany's largest wealthiest investors and became, you know, and, and started backing far right and extreme right causes and, and libertarian and anti-EU and anti-euro currency causes and, and ended up suspectedly uh, backing the RFA. It was never proven definitively, but many uh, signs point that way. It's easy to say, oh, you know, these are Germans, but really, this could happen anywhere under any circumstances. And when you described at the beginning uh, the initial reaction to the Nazis, these provincial hicks, comical almost, right. uh, and then suddenly taking power, I don't know, it sounds like an eerie echoes of the present to me. <laughs> yeah, I agree. What lessons would you draw from all this for the present and, and the future? Certainly business leaders, you know, should be more aware of history you know they should be more focused on learning from history than being completely focused on short-term profits because you know as you saw as you now currently see what's going on the devil's pack the russian oligarchs made with vladimir putin and uh, american business leaders uh, fell in line after when donald trump started spouting um, racist uh, stuff you know they didn't they stayed mum you know after the muslim ban was enacted uh, many of them stayed stayed uh, mum after after charlottesville too you know, throughout the Trump administration and and kind of vile, racist things that him and his uh, uh, other members of his administration were, were saying, you know. Um, so that is, I would say, one of the main lessons that, that people should draw from this book is, is be mindful of history, be aware of history. And don't look to uh, the business class for moral leadership either. Yeah, no, certainly not. Certainly not, no. That was David DeYoung, author of Nazi Billionaires from Mariner Books. I doubt that a greater awareness of history would change the behavior of capitalists if they were facing a choice between possible expropriation or systemic collapse and a fascist leader who promises a restoration of order and hierarchy. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some of Fascist Attitudes by Agnostic Front. Till next week, bye. Watch world and another They look to me why the father Never scared those down thoughts Don't let me record. Give back that dude. We need release. We're the state of 20. Be unit in peace. Don't even like her. No more danger. 